Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. Steve was 13 years old. He attended church most weekends with his parents. He's a curious lad, and he spoke to his pastor one Sunday. He said, Pastor, if I raise my finger up in the air, does God know that which finger that I was going to raise before I raised it? Pastor answered him, Steve, yes, God knows in advance what you're going to do. He's that much in charge and knows what's going on. So Steve followed that up by pulling out a copy of Life magazine and looking at a story that reflected on the poverty and the malnourishment of children in Africa. And he showed that copy of Life magazine to his pastor And he said, well, does God know what's going on in Africa? And does God know what's going to happen to these children? The pastor looked down at Steve and said this. He said, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. That was the end of the conversation. It was also the last time that Steve attended a Christian church. Uh, And many of you in this room know who Steve was. Some of you are using Steve's technology in front of you. His last name was Jobs. Now, the pastor in that setting answered him technically, correctly. But what the pastor did, or rather what the pastor didn't do, is acknowledge the intentional curiosity of a 13-year-old child who cared about what was going on in the world. And instead of listening, and instead of conversing, and instead of talking with, and instead of answering, and instead of engaging, he gave a dismissive answer that resulted in Steve Jobs never attending another church in his life. The warning for you and for me, for me as a pastor, for you as parents and grandparents and those that are responsible for kids is this, we have a small sliver of time in which we will have an opportunity to engage and influence our children, our grandchildren, the individuals that come to our church, the teenagers that we're connected with, so that they can know the God who created them and wanted a relationship and wants a relationship with them. It's a warning, it's a challenge. As I was working through the book of Proverbs, thinking about sermons to preach and praying through it, I knew that I was going to have to preach a sermon, knew God wanted me to preach a sermon on the family, the home, parenting, and Proverbs has a lot to say about parenting. Probably the most famous verse is the one we're going to read in just a moment, Proverbs 22.6. And in thinking about this verse and in leading up to it, I've been listening to some books and reading some books, I was listening to an audio book by Leonard Sachs, entitled The Collapse of Parenting. In that book, Leonard Sachs observes that in our contemporary culture, especially American culture, we're living in a day and age where the defining characteristic of children to parents and teenagers to parents is disrespect. Some of you moms and dads are in the room and you're like, well, absolutely, I'm dealing with that every day. 
dealing with sarcastic and disrespectful teenagers and grandchildren and, and children, and, and they don't care about me, and they don't care about their friends, and they don't care about anybody else. And Sachs observes that we're living in an age where your peer relationships appear to be more influential than parent relationships. And he laments some of the reasons that we've gone that direction. I would commend that book to you. It's in the resource guide and the worship guide in front of you. There's also a, uh, a specific uh, link to a, to a kind of a shortened version of some advice for parents. It's about 15 or 18 pages long versus the book. You can go to the link and find that from Leonard Sachs. Fascinating information, helpful information, but he laments this culture of disrespect that we find ourselves in. And so as followers of Jesus, as a church... One of our obligations is to come back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture tell us about being moms and dads, about being grandparents, or about being influencers in the lives of children? And Proverbs 22.6 reads this. Some of you could probably quote it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What does that mean? Some of you are sitting in here or watching from home and you feel guilty when I read that verse because you know of or you have experienced doing your best to train up a child in the way that he should go and when he grew up or when she grew up, they didn't stay in the way that they should go. They made decisions that were aberrant to the teaching that you invested in their lives. They rejected church. Some of them have rejected faith altogether. And you're sitting here, okay, what are we to do with this passage of Scripture? This is probably one of the most uh, overused and abused texts in all of the Bible. And some commentators have gone back to this and they've looked at it and said, "Well, well, what does this mean to try to make sense of our anecdotal information in light of a passage of Scripture like this? Some commentators would say train up a child in the way that he should go means that the basic thing that it means is that we're to figure out how our children are wired. In other words, we're to train them in the way that they are designed. If they're musical, we give them music. If they're mathematic, we give them math. If they're athletic, we put them in athletics. And that's what it means to train a child in the way that he should go. The problem with interpreting that verse or that phrase in the verse that way is that's not the way the book of Proverbs understands ways and paths. There's a specific uh, inference in the context of the book of Proverbs that training a child in the way that he should go, walking down a path, means there's a specific category of the way that we're supposed to live our lives that this verse is talking about. He's, he's, the Proverbs or Solomon is saying here that we're to train a child to walk in the path of wisdom, not in the path of foolishness. To walk in the path of a good work ethic, not in the path of laziness. To walk in the path of productivity, not slothfulness. To walk in the path of purity, not adultery. To walk in the path of good friends, not the path of the friends in chapter 1 that are inviting you to do violence. It's clear from the context The path in which we should go is the path of wisdom. And you and I as parents have an obligation, according to this text, to train up a child in the path in which God intends for them to go, which are the characteristics of the book of Proverbs. But then that begs the question, but when he is old, he will not depart from it. It, What do we do with that? If we've done our job as parents and as educators and pastors and children's ministers and all of that, what happens when our kids grow up and they reject faith? What are we to do with that? Well, this is where I think we need to remember the, the genre in which we are dealing with. 
The book of Proverbs is a book of general observations about life. It's not a specific set of promises that we're to take and hold on to in the sense that, okay, God says this, if I do this, God's going to bring my children back to me or back to faith. That's not what a proverb is. What a proverb is, is it's a general observation about the way we're supposed to live. And really what it means for you and me as followers of Jesus, if we train up a child in the way he should go, and we're going to unpack that in a moment, if we do that, we're stacking the deck in the favor of our children to stay on the right path. It's not a guarantee. It's not an absolute promise, and we need to remember that, but we're stacking the deck in their favor. I will say this, though. If we neglect to train up our children in the way that they should go... We're essentially setting up our children to let their values and let their decisions and let their choices be governed by the media, their peers, the education system, higher education, and so on and so forth. And I promise you, if those are the categories that are informing the values and the morals of your children, they're definitely not going to wind up in the place that God wants them to be. So what does it mean? The theme of this is that we're to train our children in the way that they should go, which means dedicating our children to the right path. You and I as parents, grandparents, those that influence the lives of children, whenever we have the opportunity, we're to dedicate them, and particularly this is for parents, dedicating our children to the right path, making sure that to the best of our ability that you and I are to put our children in in a place where they can walk the right direction. What does that mean? In short, it means that we're to teach our children to be honest rather than dishonest, to be people of integrity rather than people who tell lies, to be people who give rather than people who take, to be people who are generous. In fact, a good exercise for all of us would be to think about training our children in the way that we should go and looking through the book of Proverbs to see what is the way that we should go. What are the things that Solomon tells us should be the character of our lives? And then how are you and I as parents doing putting those uh, characteristics and character traits into the lives of our children, enforcing those, expecting those, teaching on those, so that when they grow up, there'll be people who are not lazy, people who are full of integrity, people who are generous. And, And if you want to, you can think every sermon from here on out in the book of Proverbs as we look at a list of character traits... Part of those character traits or those character traits are the things you and I as parents should do our best to instill in the lives of our children because God wants them to look a certain way, a specific way. One of the reasons I think this is so important is even in secular ethics or secular morals, there's a recognition that there are just some things that are better for us in life. Leonard Sachs, he does some research in his book on the collapse on parenting that I mentioned just a moment ago. He noted this, conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is defined as self-control and honesty. Values and characteristics that are certainly underscored in the book of Proverbs. Notice this, conscientiousness, which is self-control and honesty, measured at age 12, is the best predictor of health, wealth, and happiness 20 years later at age 32. You want to know how to best prepare your child for a productive and fruitful life? When they're 12 years old, discover whether they have self-control and honesty. 
Where is self-control and honesty built? Well, to be honest with you, it can be built in a lot of different venues and ways. You don't have to be a Christian to do so. But I find it much more helpful when we have the Holy Spirit helping our children understand what self-control and what, uh, what righteousness means and honesty means. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the rest of Proverbs 22.6 and look at three implications for dedicating our children in the way that they should go. What does this mean? How do we put this in practice? Here's the first thing I would tell you as parents. Uh, Dedicating your children in the way that they should go means that you're to demonstrate parental authority. If you're taking notes, it's in the worship guide there. It's on the screen. You're to demonstrate parental authority. What does that mean? What is authority? Well, let me say what authority is not for a second. Authority is not anger and control. Okay, in a few weeks we're going to deal with the subject of anger according to Proverbs Dealing, having authority, it's not you yelling at your kids. It's not you controlling every decision that they make. Uh, Parental authority is authority derived from God. In other words, God has ultimate authority. That's why God gets to tell us what is right and what is wrong. That's why he gave us a book called the Bible with 66 books that tells us what is moral and what is immoral, what is right and what is wrong. Why does God do that? Because he is the ultimate authority in the universe. He's the creator. He wants what's best for us. And so he authoritatively tells us what's right and wrong. And God does more than that. He doesn't just tell us what is right and wrong and tell us what is best and tell us how we can be forgiven and redeemed and saved. He exercises that authority through discipline and through consequences when we behave in a way that is sinful or that is wicked. And what that means for you and I as parents is that you and I as parents have an obligation to demonstrate parental authority in the lives of our children. In other words, it is okay for you to say to your children when they ask you, why should I do something? Because I said so. The reason that's okay is because Our job as parents is not to argue our children into doing the right thing. It's not to convince them that the right thing that you're telling them to do is the right thing that they have to do. It's not our job to debate with them. It's not our job to be their best friend. Can I just tell you that? Mom and dad, you're not to be the best friend of your kids. Your kids have plenty of best friends. They have plenty of not best friends. They have plenty of friends that they're going to like and that they're going to get along with and some that they're not. But they only have one set of parents and that's you. And you have an obligation as mom and as dad to make sure that you demonstrate parental authority. That you let them know this is what I expect and there is really no bucking this. In the collapse of parenting, Leonard Sachs observes that we're living in an age where we tend to connect troubling behaviors from children, but particularly teenagers, to diagnoses. And then instead of a pediatrician or a psychologist looking at mom and dad and saying, mom and dad, your child would be better off if you would discipline your child, the psychologist or the psychiatrist recommends medication. I'm not against medication when it's called for, but Sachs observes, and you can read his research in The Collapse of Parenting, Sachs observes that in many cases, the problem is not the child's diagnosis. It's not that the child has something that needs to be treated medicinally. The problem is that mom and dad won't exercise and demonstrate parental authority. That they won't look at their five-year-old or their 17-year-old and say, no, you're my child, and this is what it means to live in my household. 
Now, that's going to certainly look different for children at different ages. At three, exercising parental authority might mean a battle of the wills with your independent-minded toddler. Had a few of those. Some of you parents in the room know what that's like. And you can't lose. Okay, you can't let your three-year-old win because a three-year-old winning is not near as bad as a 17-year-old winning, but a 17-year-old will win if they've won at three and if they won at seven and if they won at 10 and if they won at 13. You get what I'm saying? You exercise or demonstrate parental authority. At five, it might mean teaching your kindergartner not to take her friend's toys. That's wrong. At eight, it might mean demanding that your child clean his or her room. I realize that eight-year-olds can't do everything, but eight-year-olds can do some things. They can put a dish in the dishwasher. They can pick up their bedroom. They, they can stop mom from destroying her feet on the Legos that are on the floor in the living room. They can do certain things, right? And they should have to do those certain things. At 11, it might mean not giving your middle schooler a phone. I'm really going to meddle here. I'm telling you, sometimes... Part of the problem with parental authority is we've given in to children without thinking of the consequences of giving in to children. And when I say children, middle schoolers and high schoolers, some kids are not mature enough to have a cell phone. And and even if they do, it's not their phone, their privacy. I want to tell you something, mom and dad. Your child doesn't have a right to privacy in your house. Moms and dads with teenagers, 11-year-olds, 15-year-olds, you should, have, you should let them know from day one, if you haven't done this lately, it'd be good at practice for you to do this. You should let them know, I can come in your room anytime I want to come in your room. I can look at what's on your computer screen. I can see what you're watching on television. I should have access to everything on your phone. There is no such thing as a right to privacy for the children that are living under your roof. Demonstrating parental authority means knowing that you're responsible for protecting your son from seeing pornographic images or your daughter from sharing pornographic images. You have a responsibility to protect your teenagers from being bullied and from being a bully. And the only way that that authority can be demonstrated is if you actually engage in what they're participating in through the means of phone technology, social media, what they're watching on TV, etc., etc., etc. Now, if you want some guides and some instruction, uh, the Collapse of Parenting offers some specific advice, Sticky Guide for Family. I'll reference that book in a moment. It's also in, in the resource page there in the worship guide. It recommends some things that we can do, but you've got to demonstrate parental authority. Your job as parents is to guide your children in a path that will exhibit character leading them through life. And if you don't exhibit or demonstrate authority in their lives, I promise you they're going to push back and they're going to push back in a way that's detrimental to their safety and protection personally, but definitely detrimental to their spiritual life. Because secondly, an implication in dedicating your children down the right path is this, we're to exercise loving and diligent discipline. Why? Because every child, every child, I don't care how introverted or extroverted they are. I don't care how sweet they are or how much, how rambunctious they are. Every child is going to push back against boundaries. They're going to find whatever line that there is, and they're going to get right up to that line, and they're going to dare you to do anything when they cross the line. 
And here's why discipline and authority is so important. Because if you keep backing the line up and you keep sliding down and giving in, they're going to keep following to where the line is. And eventually, if you keep backing up, they're going to jump over that line and they're going to go a place that is spiritually detrimental to their future. You see, we're not, uh, we, as parents, we don't need to care about whether our kids like us. Man, this is painful to say. Because I had a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. I love it when they love me. I do. I, I don't like it when they say they hate me. But they both have told me before that they've hated me. They don't really mean it. And, and you need to re- hear this. When your kid tells you that they don't mean it, I don't think they mean it. No, no, my point is, it's not our job to make our kids like us. It's our job to discipline our children lovingly. Listen to what Proverbs says about discipline. 13.24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. How about this, Proverbs 19.18, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. There are other passages. Look at Proverbs 23. 13 through 16 and Proverbs 22, 15. Listen, get this, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Do you know why so many people have gone a path that has destroyed them? It's because mom and dad wasn't present or mom and dad didn't discipline their children. Because an undisciplined five-year-old is one thing, an undisciplined 25-year-old is a completely different And moms and dads, if your children are still in your household, if they're still responsible to you and you're responsible to them, you should discipline them. Now, I'm not going to tell you how. That's between you and the Lord, whether you use corporal punishment. I'll just tell you this. My mom and dad believed in whipping. I got a belt on my bottom when when I disobeyed. And there are different types of punishment. It's your job as a parent to know what gets at your child. I've got one son that if we take technology away, it works. I've got another son that if you take technology away, he laughs. He just says, okay, I don't care. I don't watch TV screen. You have to do something else to get his attention. But we have an obligation to discipline our children because they will push the boundaries. Discipline exhibits and shows that you understand that there's something wrong with your child. See, one of the issues with the challenge of parenting in a contemporary culture is this. There's such a distinction between a biblical worldview and the worldview espoused in contemporary culture. Culture will tell us, and almost anybody in schools will tell us, and psychologists and psychiatrists will tell us, hey, our kids are just good little boys and girls. I mean, they really are. They're naturally good and wonderful people. It's our job to build up their self-esteem and help them understand what they need to do to thrive in life. And the problem with that philosophy is it's not biblical. Your children are not this one, these wonderful little beings who if you just build up their self-esteem, they'll thrive in life. Your children are born sinners. One book I read this week called them Little Criminals. You don't have to teach your three-year-old to hit you. You don't have to teach your 10-year-old to lie to you. Why do they do that? Folks, they do that because they're sinners. And one of the greatest things, I want you to get this, this is hard to believe, but one of the greatest things mom and dad you can do to help your child understand the gospel is discipline them when they misbehave. Discipline them when they are dishonest, discipline them when they are disrespectful, and discipline them when they are disobedient. Did y'all hear that? 
Discipline comes when they're dishonest, disobedient, and disrespectful. One of the greatest things you can do for their spiritual development is to not let those areas get past a moment of your discipline, whatever that looks like, because when you do, you acknowledge over and over and over again to your child that they are sinful. Because the only way your child will ever come to the point where they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but the only way they'll do that is when they recognize that they're a sinner. Think about this, mom and dad, in your own testimony and personal faith relationship. When did you come to know Jesus? You came to know Jesus and become a follower of Christ when you realized there was something wrong between you and God. That your sin was in the way and only Jesus could solve your sin. Until you realize that, you didn't come to faith in Jesus. If your child thinks they're their superstar, thinks that they've never done anything wrong, and you as a parent live in that kind of mindset with your child, that they can't do anything wrong, you don't discipline them, what you're telling them instinctively is that they don't need someone to rescue them from their sin. You're not saying that explicitly, but implicitly that's what we're saying to kids. In fact, that's why the gospel is so hard to be understood by so many people in our culture because they don't realize that there's something inherent in them that's the problem, their sinful nature, that they need Jesus. Mom and dad, you want your 5-year-old or your 10-year-old or your 15-year-old to know Jesus? A starting point for you is disciplining them, consistently disciplining them. Here's why. Because we cannot expect the school system, higher education, culture, media, or technology, or politics to teach our children right from wrong, character, or submission to authority. I'm telling you, do not wait on a Disney Channel program to teach your children how to respect mom and dad. Don't wait on a politician to model it. Seriously. I'm sure, and my kids have had great educators, great teachers, But I'm telling you, the teachers at school have much more important things to do on a regular basis in an entire classroom than to teach your kids morals and ethics. They're not going to get that at the school system. If you don't teach them right from wrong, obedience from disobedience, the folly and the destruction of a false path, and the glory and the wonder of following Jesus, if you don't teach them that, There's nobody else that's going to teach them that. Save us at the church. And in a pandemic year, do you know how many hours we got with your your children in the last 18 months? If you're waiting on the church to be the place where they hear the gospel, if you're waiting on the church to be the only place where they hear the good news about Jesus, listen, we'll tell them about Jesus. I promise you that. You bring them here, they're going to hear the good news. But if we're the only ones saying it in their life, if we're the only ones teaching right from wrong, then they're not going to get it near enough for it to imprint on their hearts and lives so they'll become followers of Jesus. And folks, we need to exercise loving and diligent discipline. Essentially, that means consistent discipline. Not in anger, not in frustration, not in being mean. I'm not talking about abusing your kids. I'm talking about consistent discipline and correction for where they've gone wrong. That's part of what it means to train up a child in the way that he should go. Thirdly, third implication, what it means to dedicate our children to the right path. This is really important, probably the most important point. We need to keep the eternal path in view. I think this is where we as parents, even Christian parents and godly parents, may struggle the most. See, you and I have this inborn desire as parents to help our children succeed. 
And we want our kids to do well in life. We want our kids to be good students. And if they've got a reading problem, we're going to try to fix that reading problem. We're going to get them a tutor. If they've got a math problem, we're going to try to help them with math projects so that they can understand math better. We're going to try to set our children up for success. We're going to do our best to make sure that our children are well-rounded, healthy, viable individuals in in culture. Sometimes that means we're going to put them in extracurricular activities. Sometimes that means we're going to get them tutors. Whatever it means, we're going to help them. And we, as as parents, I know this, I'm one of them, we get caught up in the day-to-day so easily. Man, everything that is going on in life, I'm so busy, you're so busy, our kids are so busy, our schedules are all over the place. And what we end up doing sometimes is we get lost in all the details of everything else going on in life. But we've too often confused the outward appearance of being well-rounded and successful, get this, with what is truly important. What is truly important? Do you realize your kid can make a B and still go to heaven? But if your kid makes straight A's and goes to hell, that, that's, that's not a good trade-off. Do you realize your, your kid may never play in the Olympics or, or compete in the Olympics? But they may compete in the Olympics, but if they go to hell, is it worth it? My point is this, we've got to remember that our obligation as parents is not just to help them today, and it's not just to prepare them for tomorrow, and it's not just to help them be good folks in life. I'm all for Leonard Sachs' conscientiousness, teach them self-control, and teach them honesty, but I want to make sure that I have a perspective that is longer than that, that's even beyond today, that's eternal, that that goes beyond, And, and here's where we miss it. We miss it when we forget that our, the best teacher of our children is our own behavior. Kara Powell, in the Sticky Guide, Faith for Your Family, she said this. Um, she said, we'll get what we are. Do you want to really get a good picture of who your child is going to be? Look in the mirror. What you're doing today as a mom or as a dad is exactly what your child is going to do as an adult or close to exactly what your child is going to do. Benjamin Franklin put it this way. He said that, and he was not a follower of Jesus. He was a deist at best. But he said this, example is the best sermon So so think about this for just a moment. If you go back to your last 24 hours, or, or, or let's say you go back to your last week, what did your kids see you doing? Did, did they see you act dishonestly? Then guess what? You're, you're, whatever you teach them about honesty is going to be betrayed by how you acted. Did they see you reading the Bible? If they did, fantastic, because that sets a a picture up in their eyes. Did they see you living out your faith as a servant and ministering to other people? If they did, awesome. But but did they see you yelling at somebody on the road? I mean, road rage, anybody? They're watching that. Did, Did they see you gossip or hear you gossip? In other words, what we do is who they will become. 
One of the greatest responsibilities that you and I have and the reason God wants us to correct our own behavior and follow Jesus in our day-to-day lives is because we're giving an example to them that they're going to then see and look into. And this isn't, a, this isn't kind of telling you you've got to be perfect. But this is telling us that we've got to take it seriously because we want our kids to see something bigger and more important. We want them to see the eternal. Some of your kids have straight A's. Some of your kids are fantastic ball players and good dancers. Some of your kids are doing some fantastic things in life. But get this, do you realize that who you are is how your children will become? And if they never see you take church seriously, then they won't. Hear this. If, if church is not important to you, then when they're 25, don't be surprised that they, that they woke up one day and stopped going to church. It's not going to happen. What about this? If they never see you read the Bible, then why should they read the Bible? If they never see you value others through service, why would they waste their time on others? Some of you want your children to follow Jesus and go to heaven. Amen, right? You want them to know Jesus. Then... What are your values telling them about following Jesus? What are your words telling them about following Jesus? Some of you have taught your children what to do and what not to do and not to run out in front of traffic and to hold hands when you're crossing the lines and to be quiet when adults are talking and all kind of really important things and values for life. Fantastic. They hear you say a lot of good things. When was the last time you talked to them about faith and about Jesus? I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Let me pause and ask two questions that I think are pertinent for some folks in the room that may not be parents who have kids in their home anymore. What about you here that are not directly responsible for children any longer? What about you that are grandparents? Or what about you in the room that that you're not involved in the day-to-day raising of a child? Let me tell you, you still have influence in the life of grandchildren and you still have opportunities in the lives of others. In her book, Sticky, Guide for, or Sticky Faith Guide for Family, Kara Powell relates the story of a lady by the name of Ruth. She was 80 years old. And she wanted people to influence the lives of teenagers in her church. So she stepped up. Here's what she did. She got the names of all of the high school graduates that were going to college. And she wrote them a letter while they were in college. She wrote every single one of them a letter once a week for the entire year that they were at college. And you know what happened? Those teenagers that became college students knew that there was an 80-year-old lady in their church that was praying for them, that loved them, and that cared about them. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There is not a reason at all that every single one of us in this room can't have a specific, intentional, personal influence in the life of a child or the life of a teenager. We talk all the time about having enough adults in classrooms for kids here in our church. Hey, if you don't have anything else to do on a Sunday morning, why don't you talk to me and Danielle? And who cares if we've got five adults in a room with 10 kids? fantastic. I promise you every other adult will be happy there's an extra adult in the room. And the kids will be too when we take an interest in their lives. If you take an interest in the life of a child so that you can influence them for eternity, man, that matters a lot. And grandparents, that goes for you. You're not directly responsible for the discipline in the home of your grandchildren. But I want to tell you something. You can still influence them spiritually. 
You can pray for them. You can give them notes of encouragement. You can help mom and dad. You can encourage. You, you can be a help in their lives. It's tremendously important. Let me give a, a word of advice too. What if your grandchild or your child has strayed from the faith? So, so what if you're living out the, the, the pushback to Proverbs 22.6? You raised your child as best as you could, okay? You did the best you could. You prayed for them, you took them to church, and they walked away from faith. I, I, wanna, I want you to re- remember something. You are not singularly responsible for the decisions that your adult children make. You are only responsible for how you taught them when they were in your home. Get that? You're not responsible for every decision they make when they're 18, when they're 25, or when they're 45. You're responsible for what you taught them. But how in the world do we re-engage with those that we're so burdened for? What do we do? Let me tell you one thing not to do. Stop preaching at them. Stop lecturing them. Adult children don't want to hear another lecture. Teenagers really don't either. Although I've got a... My brother was telling me that the way they discipline their son now, who's 11, is they lecture him, which is kind of cool. I've thought about doing that with my sons too. But kids don't like lectures. I'm not saying they don't need them sometimes. But if you've got an adult child or an adult grandchild or a teenage grandchild, listen, stop lecturing them. Don't lose them. What I mean by that is keep the relational connection open. Don't don't get on their case so much that they don't want to have anything to do with you. Pray for them. Support them, be there for them, uh, care for them, keep the doors open. God can do things that you will be amazed that he'll do in bringing people back to faith. But we don't know why and we don't know when, just trust them to the Lord. And don't carry a guilt around that you can't, you can't bear anyway. The only one that can bear that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we, we get to this point in the sermon, I, I, I want to tell you, I've got an assignment for you. And then I've got an invitation for you. Okay, so I'm going to get real for a second, all right? I'm gonna get, I've been burdened about this for a long, long time in preparing this message. Think about this. If your daughter becomes a softball star or a gymnastics queen or a soccer star or a fantastic dancer, maybe even competes in the Olympics, but fails to follow Jesus... Will the hours of practice and effort be worth it? If your son or daughter excels in school, makes straight A's, goes to early college, completes postgraduate education, succeeds in life financially, supports you when you're old, but does not know Jesus, will it have been worth it? Since Jesus said this, for what profit will it, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Mom and dad? Grandmother, grandfather, your responsibility is to keep the eternal path in view. So here's the assignment. Today, one day this week, I want you as a family to sit down at your dinner table in your living room. And mom and dad, I want you to take the initiative to talk to your children about faith. Say, oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? Well, go back and listen to that song that... Eddie and Michelle just sang, our praise team just sang. They just testified to what Jesus had done in their lives. Honestly, I want you to sit down with your children and your grandchildren, whoever it is that you have responsibility with, sometime this week, and tell them your story of faith. 
Tell them how you came to faith in Jesus. Tell them what it was like when you were lost. And tell them what it was like when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's an important story in your life. And by the way, if you're a child hearing this, don't let your mom and dad off the hook. Okay? You make them sit down with you and tell them their faith story. If you're listening, child, at home, go to your grandparents and say, Hey, when did you come to know Jesus? Ask them that question. Here's why. Because those are the kind of conversations, mom and dad, grandmother and grandfather, that we ought to have with our children on a semi-regular basis. I'm not telling you to pressure your kid to put their faith in Jesus. I'm telling you to talk with your kid about something that is eternally important. And if you won't talk with them about it on a semi-regular basis, how will your five-year-old or your 14-year-old or your 28-year-old know that it matters? Talk to them about your faith. Tell them what's important. Tell them when you came to faith in Jesus. So every single one in the room, I'm giving you an assignment. Find somebody to tell your faith story to. Mom or dad, that's your kids. Grandparents, that's your grandchildren. If you don't have somebody that you know you can talk to about it, find somebody in a relational circle, in a Sunday school class, some kind of ministry environment where you can tell your faith story to. That's the assignment. Now here's the invitation. Invitation is this, and I know many of you are watching at home. Some of you are in the room. Invitation is this. We're going to pray in just a moment. And if you've not trusted Jesus to be your Savior, I'd love nothing more than to tell you how you could trust Jesus to be your Savior. But here's what I really want you to do. I want you as a family unit to pray together. Dads, I'm talking to you uh, at home particularly. I want you at this moment to get your family in a circle in your living room or wherever you're watching the worship service, I want you to gather your family up. And when we pray in a moment, we give an invitation. I want you to pray for the salvation of your children. If they're already saved, pray for their direction and their maturity and their decision-making. But if they're lost, pray for their salvation. Let your children hear you pray for them and pray that they'll trust in you and pray that they'll follow you. Let them hear that. Let them hear you plead on behalf of who God is in their lives. Listen, family worship is something that ought to happen way more often in our homes. It ought to be consistent, part of our daily lives. And I want to tell you something. Dads and moms, take this moment at the invitation to pray. If you're in the room, here's what that looks like. When we give an invitation in a moment, if you need to come forward and trust Jesus, fantastic. If you want to come forward as a family and kneel at the altar, great. But if you want to make an altar where you are, I don't want to see you singing. I want to see you praying. I want to see you wrap your arms around your children, your spouse, whoever's here, and I want you to pray for them and pray with them. I I don't care if you pray out loud. I don't care if you pray quietly. Ideally, you pray out loud so your child, so your wife, so your husband can hear you pray. Pray for the spiritual direction of your home. Pray that we as a body of believers will train up our children in the way that they should go so that they will have eternal life. Let me tell you something. I believe God's going to bear fruit in the lives of our families as moms and dads, as grandmoms and granddads, pray over and pray for their families and their kids. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to offer a word of prayer. And then when we begin singing, I want you to pray. Gather around as the family unit, come to the altar, whatever it takes. Dads, Do not wait on mom to lead this. Dads, lead this. Start it. You be the spiritual leader in your home and you get them together. You pray for them. Let's pray. Father, I know that in the life of our church, watching at home, in the room, I know there are five-year-olds and eight-year-olds 
13-year-olds, 15-year-olds who have not yet put their faith and trust in you. And I know, Heavenly Father, you want to save them far more, far more than uh, we want them saved. And I pray now that as mom and dad prays for them, I pray that you would convict their heart and draw them to a faith relationship with you. I ask God that you would bear fruit in the testimonies of moms and dads as they talk with their kids this week. I pray that you would bring teenagers and children and even adults to faith in you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that dad or mom that's watching and that's listening, who this message was so that they will become a follower of you. Lord, Lord, the reason that they're not leaving their home well is because they're not trusting in you yet as Savior. I pray that a daughter or a son or a wife or a husband will look at that spouse, look at that dad, look at that mom and say, hey, hey when, when did you meet Jesus? And when they can't answer that question, Lord, I pray that this moment, this sermon, that conversation would be a starting point or would be a bearing fruit point or would be a, a, a reaping point for that individual coming to a faith relationship in you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring souls into your kingdom through the lives of moms and dads praying for their kids, through the lives of grandparents praying for their, their grandchildren. Heavenly Father, I know as I pray that there are adult children and adult grandchildren that have been the burdens on hearts and lives of church members at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Yeah, they were taught right as a child, but they've strayed. They've walked away from you. God, give these parents and give these grandparents strength and stamina to keep praying to keep encouraging, to keep the lines of communication open, to not give up on your Holy Spirit working in the heart of that strayed child, working in the heart of that one that has walked away. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do, which is save and redeem and forgive and restore and reconcile. God, you are capable. You are capable, and it is to you that we pray. We pray that you would work in the hearts and lives of children, teenagers, and adults. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would save and redeem. Make our families and our church strong, that your name may be glorified here, today, but in the days to come, as children and teenagers and adults become followers of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.